0: Official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at WellChurchVT.com. As Adam mentioned, we are continuing our series, Rooted, uh, each week for the, through the summer. We're going to be looking at a different word found in the Bible, and we're going to be unpacking uh, the meaning uh, in the original language. Now, just a note, this series isn't just for people who love words and language. It's not just for linguistic nerds, though linguistic nerds sure are welcome here at Church at the Well. Uh, but, the, but the original languages of the Bible, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, the, the, these are languages that were actually much more pictorial than modern English. And so when, when, we, deep, when we dig deeper into the original meaning of the, the, the words found in the original language of the Bible, there's often images or narratives embedded into a word. And so you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic in order to love the Bible, read the Bible, to use the Bible as a way of praying and understanding who God is. But often, as we're able and as we're equipped to study the Bible, um, the Bible seems to come to life in ways that we hadn't experienced before. Or, or perhaps we see something in color or in a different color that we may not have seen before. And so I actually think that this series, even though on the surface it can seem like, oh, maybe this is like a wordy, nerdy series, that this series actually has the capacity to do something quite different um, because we end up drawing uh, from a well of meaning that often has images and narrative connected to those words. And so it's actually... uh, Though on the surface it might seem like a series that is for those who exist primarily in their head, it actually is the type of series that can can take some like an idea or a concept and a word and move that into our hearts. Example, a couple weeks ago, who is here when Adam taught from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God, right? And he he covered this Hebrew word rapha, which carries within it, it's the word be still in Hebrew, which carries with it this idea of relaxing your arms by your side. Now, I personally know that I'll never read that passage the same again, right? Anyone else with me? That was a good sermon. If you missed it, it is on the podcast WellchurchVT.com, or you can just find it on anywhere that you find podcasts. It's there. Uh, So it has this, this capacity to move things from our head to our hearts. And so this morning, we're getting to another word. It's a Hebrew word, and that word is gatshamin. Can you say it with me? Gatshamin. You're like, give it to me one more time. You guys did great. That's amazing. And it means olive oil press. Olive oil press. Some people, like I was not expecting that. I was expecting like grace or peace or love, etc. No, olive oil press, or or even more fully captured, it means place of the olive oil press. So, uh, I have a picture for you this morning. This first picture will will stay here for a moment. This is a picture of an ancient olive oil press. I actually took this picture. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, at the end of May, I took a trip to Israel, and this was at a museum in Nazareth, where uh, they kind of essentially built a replica of an ancient first century Nazarene village, and they tried to use original building materials and techniques, etc., and so this is an image of uh, where the olives would be crushed, and you can see there on the right, remember that, what that thing is for just a moment. That's like a little kind of mesh woven basket thing that they would place the olives in as they were crushed. So go to the next slide. And this is the full olive oil press. Now, you'll see there are three platforms. And what you can't see off screen is a series of weights that they would add. And what would happen is they would place that basket that you saw in that first image on top of the platform, and they would place weights at the end, and it was kind of like a, like a lever system. Matt's an engineer. He's very embarrassed by the language I'm using to describe what this does. Um, so uh, what would happen is you place the weights on, and the weights would engage this mechanism, and it would press down onto the olives to produce olive oil. Now, traditionally in first century Israel, there are actually three different pressings uh, that would take place. And so um, each of these would produce a different type of oil. So you'd put the olives in, in that kind of basket bag thing and they would be pressed and then they would add more weights and they would press again and then they would add more weights and it would be pressed again. Now, the, the olive oil that was produced from this pressing process had different uses because it was kind of of a different viscosity, different taste, different texture, etc. The first pressing of the olives, y'all are like, Ian, I thought you said this wasn't going to be nerdy. It's going to be a little bit nerdy, okay? I can't help it. Adam said he wouldn't get nerdy. He, he didn't promise that I wouldn't get nerdy, so... The first pressing of the oil produced like a really viscous oil. And this oil was used to to light lamps in the temple. So it was sent to the temple and it was used to light lamps. And it was actually used for sacrifice in the temple. Now the second pressing actually produced a really good uh, type of olive oil. Type of olive oil that maybe we are familiar with. We use it to dip like our bread in um, and... The centrecchios aren't here today. I'm sure Chris would say, you have to put a little balsamico in it. That was uh, Italian in a Hebrew accent for some reason. (laughs) 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 I am also not a... Yes, I did not. Yes, okay. Yes, yes, I need help. Pray for me. Okay. So the second olive oil pressing was used for eating, for cooking, and it would go through a pressing a third time. This olive oil wasn't as good, but it was still very useful. It was used to make products like soap, etc. Now, a few days after I visited Nazareth, so this was in Nazareth, I headed to Jerusalem and I got to visit a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. How many of you have heard of it? Yes, it's the place where Jesus prayed with his disciples Oh, we got the picture. Awesome. Yes, that's a picture I took in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, And Gethsemane was the place where Jesus prays in agony on the night before his crucifixion with his disciples. Now, Gethsemane is actually a Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Gatshamin. You can kind of almost, you can see how they came to that word, right? Gethsemane. Gethsemane, olive oil press, uh, a place where there is an olive oil press. A little bit before uh, we get the name Gethsemane in the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus and his disciples head to the Mount of Olives, and that where Jesus is praying is actually an olive grove. So it's not a don't think uh, raised beds uh, in the old North End community garden plot. Think olive grove when you read garden of Gethsemane, gatshemin And so where there are olive trees, there is an olive oil press. Now, the beautiful thing about this series is I think it captures the beauty of the Bible in a unique way. And that's this, that God never chooses a place haphazardly in this instance, Gethsemane, and he never chooses language or a word haphazardly either. And so seeing that olive oil press and visiting Gethsemane, both of those things within a few days of each other, um, helped me read the narrative of Jesus in the Garden of, of Gethsemane in a whole new way. And I actually believe there are some interesting parallels in Jesus's prayer and what he's experiencing in Gethsemane with the actual physical process of pressing olives. And I think there's something we can learn about Christ's work uh, going to the cross and in his prayers in Gethsemane, which is prayers in Gethsemane are what end up being kind of like the, the leading to the moment right before Jesus heads to the cross. Um, I, I actually believe that there's something we can learn that can form us as we pursue Christ-likeness in our own lives and in our prayers as well. So can we read Matthew 26 together? Yes. Matthew 26, and we're going to be starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, It's kind of rude, right? He just like calls Peter out, but is all of them sleeping? Just kidding. Jesus isn't rude, right? So you, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter. Temptation, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same things once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And this kind of kick-starts the moment where Jesus is taken by a mob, led by the religious leaders, put on trial by Pilate, and crucified. So... To me, there are some interesting parallels to Jesus' agony in the garden and this ancient process of pressing olives for oil. Um, The Gospel of Luke. um, and, And actually, what's interesting about this narrative is all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this story. They all record it in their own way, but they all record this story. That's very unique. It's very rare for all four of the Gospels to record the same story. It's one of the few uh, accounts that's recorded throughout all four. So just a note, something to pay attention to usually. Uh, the Gospel of Luke records Jesus being in such agony that he was, said he was sweating drops that were like blood. And I actually learned this as well when I was in Israel, that ripe olives, when they're first pressed, the juice actually ha- kind of has this like really deep red, ruby, blood-like look to it. And so there's color because we're used to seeing kind of like olive oil as this kind of like translucent yellow green, right? I was surprised by that. I didn't know that. Um, we also see Jesus's prayer happening in three stages, just like olives were pressed three times. And he feels the weight, the impending weight of his, crucif- of his impending crucifixion uh, in the same way that olives were pressed three times. And so this reminds me that God never chooses a place haphazardly. Now, I don't want to add meaning to the text where there's not meaning. So I'm not going to jump in into all the interesting ways there might be interesting parallels into the process of an ancient olive oil press and what Jesus goes through um, on the cross. But it is interesting. But I do want to stick to the three motif in our sermon this morning, um, highlighting some of these interesting parallels. And so I want to look at three elements uh, of the work of Jesus on the cross, which Jesus praying in the Garden of, of Gethsemane is a prelude for. And uh, then we're going to finish with three things we can apply to our lives that we learned from Jesus in Gethsemane. Shamin, the place of the olive oil press. And so I just want to start briefly By reflecting on the work of Jesus as he went to the cross. Before we look at how we can apply Gethsemane to our own lives. Because like everything in scripture, it always starts with gift, grace. Can I get an amen? Amen. Y'all are still with me. And we live and we work and we act and we pray from grace and gift. We don't get grace and gift because we live rightly, act rightly, pray rightly. We pray, live, act are from gift grace. So, it's important to focus first on that. And in Gethsemane, Jesus's anguish is presented as a foreshadowing of the pain he is about to experience on the cross. It's a foreshadowing, not only this physical pain, but the burden and weight uh, that he takes on of sin, of evil, death, etc. The cross is what Jesus is speaking of in his prayer when he's asking the Father, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. The the cross is what he's speaking of there, what he's praying of. First thing Jesus is doing through his work on the cross, which Gethsemane is a prelude to, Jesus establishes a new covenant, a new covenant. Just a few verses earlier in Matthew 26, Jesus is celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples, and he institutes the model that we now have for communion, something we will celebrate next week here at Church at the Well. We do this on the last Sunday of every month at Church at the Well. And Jesus said this in verse 27. This is just a few verses before. And we had taken a cup Of wine, and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now I just encourage you, if you want to get theological and nerdy, just go read Hebrews 8, 9, 10 for a brief description on what New Covenant is. But briefly, in as short of a mouthful as I can, this is what New Covenant is. New covenant is God's promise. It's an agreement, right? It's God's promise that he's restoring, renewing, redeeming all of humanity and creation through Jesus, through the work of Jesus. And that this is a gift, not dependent on works. And that through this new covenant, this new promise, this new gift that God's establishing through Jesus, he's establishing a new people. Who are distinguished by their faith in Jesus and who are invited to participate with God in his ongoing renewing, restoring, reconciling of a broken world. It's a mouthful, right? That's essentially new covenant, that God is restoring, redeeming, reconciling a broken humanity. It's his promise that he's committed to humanity. He's committed to the world he created, that when he created it, it was good. It has been broken and marred through sin, but he's not done with it. And that through the work of Jesus, um, he has inaugurated uh, the kingdom of God where he is restoring, but it's ongoing. And so he forms a new people, the church. To participate with him in this ongoing, restoring, reconciling, reconciling uh, work. Uh, second point: Jesus and his work on the cross nourishes our souls and our spirits. Jesus says in John six that he's the bread of life; that whoever eats this bread will live forever. Think of this second pressing, this work that Jesus is going through, that he was pressed in order that we might receive nourishment for our own souls. Third point, Jesus cleanses your conscience, our consciences. This is not something you hear about a lot in church. I think a lot of preachers take it on themselves. They're like, this is my time to make sure that everyone feels bad enough so I can convince them of their need of God. Just a note, that's not the job of the preacher. Actually, the scripture says that conviction comes by the Holy Spirit. It's the preacher's job to proclaim the good news, the gospel, the kingdom of God, and Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope all of us are compelled to hear at church at the well, right? Is the person of Jesus compelled by. And when we're compelled by, we're compelled out of and away from. I get that, and I understand all of that. But we don't talk about this very much, that the work of Jesus cleanses your conscience. Listen to this, Uh, Hebrews 9. This is actually talking about new covenant. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is what we work out of. He cleanses our conscience, then we serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Again, just, I'm, ho- I'm assigning it to you. Read Hebrews 8, 9, 10 this week. It's awesome. Okay. How Gethsemane forms our lives and prayers. This is what I've been hoping to get to this morning. This is where we're going to conclude this morning. Perhaps the most compelling element of Jesus' prayer in the garden is how relatable he appears in his humanity, right? And yet he exhibits this amazing reliance on God in the midst of his human anguish. It's amazing. It's compelling, not only because it's relatable in its brutal honesty, Jesus suffering, Jesus struggling. Jesus praying in anguish to God. And it's compelling as a guide of what it looks like and what it means to be fully human in Christ. And so I want to look at three elements of Jesus' prayer in the garden that can form us as we pursue Christlikeness in our own lives and in our own prayers. And it's these ideas that really compelled me to turn this passage today to look at this word, uh, Getshamim, Gethsemane, um, and as I prayed in Gethsemane just a few weeks ago, and I actually prayed for all of you there. It's not hyperbole. I prayed for our church, and I actually took our weekly prayer list with me to the garden that week. Um, as I was praying there, and actually another interesting thing, it says that Jesus went about a stone's throw away when he, was, when he went off the pray away from his disciples. Actually, I was relating to that as well because I was there with a group and I wanted to find a quiet place, so I had to go about a stone's throw away from everyone so I could find a quiet place to pray. But as I was praying, I couldn't help but wonder what would have been different if Jesus' disciples had stayed awake with him? What if they had prayed with him? Through his anguish, would they have acted differently? Would they have had a clearer picture of the kingdom of God? Would they have understood that Jesus was leading a revolution of sacrificial love, not a revolution of political violence? Would Peter have kept his sword in its sheath? Would Peter still have denied Jesus three times if he had stayed awake and prayed with Jesus in his anguish? I I don't know if any of us could answer any of those questions with certainty, but I'm certain of this. If the disciples had prayed with Jesus in Gethsemane, they would have been formed to a greater extent in some way or shape into the likeness of Jesus. They would have looked more like Jesus. I don't know in what way, but I know they would have. And that their subsequent prayers probably would have been formed by that experience as well. I know that some of us have been formed just by the reading of it. Maybe this is one of the reasons why all four Gospels record this account. It's so that us as readers, we can ask if we would have stayed awake with Jesus in Gethsemane and what there is to apply to our lives as we're, we're formed, as we ask what it means to be formed in our pursuit of Christ-likeness in our lives, prayers. Um, so the three things I'm going to look at, um, just a, I'll cover these really briefly in a moment, but um, The first thing that I think we can learn is praying your doubts, fears, anxiety, anguish, pain, etc. Praying them, actually praying them. The second is praying through them. And the third is praying out of them. Because I actually think there's a nuance that we see in Jesus' prayer as he's being pressed by the anguish of his impending crucifixion. Um, And so I have a few verses that we can throw up. This is just the sequence of Jesus' prayer, and there's a slight nuance between the first two prayers, and actually the third prayer isn't even recorded for us. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, so now he's not even asking for the cup to be removed, your will be done. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. But we know from the first two, he kind of prayed a little bit of a different thing each time. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And so there's a little bit of a nuance. There's a sequence. We can see that as Jesus is praying, that Jesus is actually being formed in that prayer. And so I actually think there's something we can take away with us this morning, as we conclude. First, pray your doubts, fears, anguish, anxiety, pain. Jesus' first prayer is anguish. There's also obedience, like, um, yet not as I will, but as you will. But there's something about complete vulnerability and honesty before God that, that transforms us. And as we learn to pray, as we learn to pray, emphasis on learn, the first step is not learning the right words. It's not learning the right words or phrases. The first step is always complete vulnerability and honesty before God. God isn't afraid of your fears, he's not afraid of your doubts, he's not afraid of your pain, anguish, anxiety, etc. A true sacrifice of prayer begins with complete and honest vulnerability. And it's only then we can move to, yet not as I will, but as you will. God isn't interested in false spirituality. Begins with, Jesus, just take the wheel, right? God desires to hear our prayers in unadulterated honesty. Sometimes people ask me, they say to me, hey, Ian, I don't know where to start with prayer. How about you start right there? Start with your frustration of not knowing where to start with prayer. Without the right words, maybe even with words that seem blasphemous to you. Vulnerable before God. That's what I'm encouraging. And it's after this first prayer that God responds to Jesus, not in the way that Jesus asked. The cup of the cross is not going To pass him. The Gospel of Luke records this, though. God responds to Jesus' first prayer, just not in the way that Jesus asked. He sends an angel to strengthen Jesus, strengthen his resolve. If Jesus is so anguished in prayer that he needed divine strength, who are we to think that we don't or that we can't pray vulnerably? or that we don't need divine strength to continue to pray. Maybe prayer should start with laying ourselves bare and vulnerable before God. Depressing continues. But Jesus has received strength in his vulnerability before God to continue. Second point, pray through. So first one is pray. Just pray your fears, doubts, anxieties, etc. Second, Pray through your doubts, fears, anxiety, pain. When Jesus prays a second time, he prays, could we just throw up the the three verses again, just so we can have that in the background? He prays, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There seems to be a fuller understanding as Jesus has been strengthened that this cup's not going to pass since Jesus doesn't ask for the cup to be removed this time. He's received strength to pray through, to continue on praying. And I believe that if we're to be formed in prayer, formed in prayer, we need to be malleable to however God responds to our prayers. That doesn't mean we aren't honest, vulnerable, that we don't make our desires requests known to God. It means that there is a core resolve to our prayers. And our core resolve is to be able to eventually pray, even in our anguish, your will be done. Your will be done. That's the core resolve. This isn't easy. It starts with honesty, vulnerability, and a learned reliance on God. It's not about being, and this is this is important to note. As we're, it's it's a learned reliance on God. It's not about our strength to continue on in prayer. It's precisely the opposite. It's about being honest enough to say, I'm weak, broken, poor. I need you, God. Not your will. Not my will, but your will. Be done. And so we pray through it and we're formed in our understanding of God, ourselves, and what it means to be formed in the likeness of Jesus in prayer. Third point. Pray out of your doubt and we'll wrap up here this morning. Fear, anxiety, pain. So we don't have the words Of Jesus' third prayer, except for the description, he kind of said the same thing. But we do see that Jesus continues to express complete reliance, obedience before God, even in anguish. And not only that, when he leaves Gethsemane, he fulfills his path to the cross. So we know he was formed in Gethsemane to at least have the strength to continue on his path. He's resolute in his obedience, he's resolute in his commitment to sacrificial love for the redemption of the world. In Gethsemane, the pressing was a part of what formed Jesus in his commitment to the cross. It was a part of it. Listen to these verses from the book of Philippians, which these are actually likely lyrics to one of the oldest Christian hymns. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit. If any affection and compassion make my joy complete, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as important, as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look after your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others and this is the Christ hymn i was speaking of have this attitude he d- paul defines further what he means by kind of borrowing this hymn have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of god did not consider did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Think of him in the garden to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We could preach a whole series on that passage. I won't. But what we see in Gethsemane is Jesus emptying himself before God. He did not consider or regard equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself before God in complete vulnerability, honesty, and obedience, and reliance. And as he empties himself, he inaugurates a new world, a new people, founded on the principle of sacrificial love and grace. Notice that Jesus' work accomplishes a lot, right? It can be a mouthful. But according to Paul and who off, whoever like authored this OG hymn, Jesus emptying himself and going to the cross not only accomplishes all of these things, it becomes a model for us. Have this attitude in yourselves, right? This is what I mean by praying out of. Praying out of your fear, anguish, doubt, pain. Being completely reliant on God. Resolute in our commitment to love from that place. And it's there we're able to find the strength through Christ to commit our lives to loving others. Without merely looking out for our own personal interests. So... If you are on the press this morning, if you have been on the press this week, maybe it's the first pressing, maybe it's second pressing with some more weight, maybe it's a third pressing with even some more weight, right? I think it's important to think about where, where we are and what we might learn from Gatshamin from the pressing of Jesus in the garden. Maybe the best place to start this morning is just to pray. Pray your pain, pray your anxiety, pray your doubts, pray your frustration with praying, about praying. And maybe as you do, you'll receive strength to pray through that. And then maybe even more so, we'll be able to take on more Christ-likeness as we're formed in prayer, to pray out of that, to commit our lives to sacrificial love, to the healing restoration of a broken world. What if we were, and I'm going to invite the band up right now as well. Uh, We're going to sing one last song together. What if we were to stay awake to God in our pain? What if we were to be completely vulnerable and honest before God? What if we were open enough to pray through our pain and be malleable to however God responds to us in that place? And what if we were to pray out of our pain and anguish and find a path to love from that place of pressing, from being put in the gatshamin. What if we were able to find a path to love from that place? Let's pray for God's spirit to strengthen us. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that your presence is here with us in this place. We thank you that you can Give us an image of an ancient olive oil press and teach us something about who you are and how we are to be formed in your likeness and how we can be formed in our lives of prayer. God, I know there are many of us being pressed, weighed down. I ask that you would give them the strength to pray, to just begin in some way, to express in honesty and vulnerability before you, what they are going through. But God, I also ask that you would give them strength and that as a church community, we would be formed more into the likeness of Jesus, that we would find, even in our anguish, a path to love the world around us, to love each other, to commit our lives to having the same attitude that we see in you, Jesus. Honest, vulnerable, vulnerable, but resolute in reliance, obedience to you and into the path of giving our lives for others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.